Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Please read the highlighted verses with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm uh, also a pastor here at Grace, and I want to add my greetings uh, to those that you, I hope, already received and and the welcome. Uh, Daniel alluded to it already this morning, but I just thought we should specifically welcome uh, Mr. and Mrs. Casting to the room. Are they in the room? There's Peter and this... Peter and Karen got married here yesterday in the chapel next door, and then uh, there was quite a shindig in here. And uh, I I understand that if you stay for the potluck after church, you can, uh, there's still some of the amazing fare that was part of the reception. So we're going to, we're going to eat some of that along with cake and other things. So congratulations, you guys. I was listening to a, a podcast this week. It's actually a podcast that comes from the New York Times. They call it The Daily. And on The Daily this week, they interviewed a guy named Jeffrey Hinton. And Jeffrey Hinton uh, apparently is someone that many people would call the godfather of artificial intelligence. He uh, was one of the original scientists researching neural pathways and I'm going to try not to say more because if people are in the room that know what they're talking about, I'll sound silly. But he has in recent years left his multi-million dollar job at Google and begun to share his significant concerns about the possible impact of artificial intelligence in our culture. He has concerns that it's becoming increasingly difficult to know the difference between a real person and a bot online. He has concerns uh, about that it's becoming increasingly difficult to verify statements that are made or news reporting, whether or not it's truthful. It's increasingly difficult to spot disinformation. In fact, it's uh, these days sometimes difficult to verify an event with a photograph because photographs can be created. We are, he fears, increasingly dislodged from verifiable truth. I have a friend who I went to grad school with. Uh, He's a pastor in Arizona, a lot smarter than me. He wrote a book in which he explores the impact of how, how all of the time that Generation Z is spending in the digital world, online and through smartphones and social media, uh, rather than in time spent in personal interactions like generations before them. 
He describes a generation that's struggling deeply with a fragmented concept of themselves. Uh, with an, increasingly, an increasing majority of their time, their work time, their social time, their study time spent disassociated, he says, from their bodies. It's online. Disassociated from time and place where they're at. Their lives are increasingly virtual. He, we are, he fears, uh, currently more concerned with identity than ever before and yet detached from physical community, detached from location where we're at and detached from the identity forming personal interactions that have helped young people understand themselves from the beginning of time. We are, he fears, increasingly dislodged from real fellowship. Today is Trinity Sunday, and uh, we're beginning a summer series in three small books close to the end of the New Testament. If uh, you have your Bible and you're looking um, and you find a book called John, you're not in the right place. You need to get John with a number. This is how we memorize it at my house. At the, towards the end of the Bible, we say it's Hebrews, uh, James, Pete, Pete, John, 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 Jude, Revelation. And today, uh, we're starting a sermon series. And 1 John will go through all three of these short books through the summer. Uh, they're small books. They're letters that are named after their author, uh, we're pretty sure the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, probably written 60 or 70 years after Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, written by a guy who knew himself and describes himself in the Gospel of John as one of the 12, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or Jesus' beloved disciple. To the best we can tell, we're talking about a John with Jesus plus 60 or 70 years, so he's an aging guy, and he's probably part of a group of early Christian refugees in the city of Ephesus. They've been displaced from Jerusalem in the wake of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, John writes to Christians who have suddenly found themselves dislodged from the place that they have always called home dispersed from Israel across Asia Minor, no longer in their location that tells them who they are, and increasingly removed from the time that Jesus spent on earth. They are moving chronologically further and further away from when Jesus walked on earth, and they have moved geographically away from the places where Jesus taught and walked and healed and died. There is a questioning growing within this generation of the church that John writes to, questioning whether or not uh, things that John reported in his gospel really happened. There's a question about whether or not it's important to believe that Jesus really lived and rose from the dead, or if the idea of the resurrection is just an inspirational idea and that's enough to build your life around. There's a rising questioning about whether or not Jesus ever really was a, a man. Did he have a human body or was this some kind of spiritual message? 
And into this rising disinformation, John writes as a first-person witness testifying to the fact that Jesus was God incarnate. This is a big theological word, incarnation. That he did, in fact, live as a man in history in Israel. And as we'll see today and in the weeks to come, that it makes a profound impact. It's profoundly important for our identity and for the true fellowship and relationships that our hearts long for and created for that we understand and believe this. And so today, in the first uh, four verses of First John, a sermon called Fellowship with two parts, the eternal in the flesh and fellowship in the flesh. The eternal in the flesh. So John, first thing you might note if you're studying this letter is that he fails to introduce himself. You read the other letters in the New Testament, people like Paul and Peter are cordial enough to let you know who's writing. Um, it's uh, actually, it would have been the practice of the time to introduce themselves as the author. But the writing style of 1 John is actually so similar, so reminiscent of what you read in the Gospel of John that you can see the resemblance even in an English translation. Let me show you the first verse of 1 John and the first verse of the Gospel of John. 1 John 1.1, that which was in the beginning, the word of life. And, for, and, and the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John puts his signature on the letter even though he doesn't sign his name. All four verses we read this morning are actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Um, but the main verb doesn't occur until halfway through the second verse. It says there that we proclaim to you. The critical thing that John wants to communicate is that the eternal life, which was with the Father, that which was from the beginning, was made manifest to us. John is again doing his best to communicate this mind-blowing concept of the incarnation, that the eternal God, the one who is outside of time and who was before creation, appeared. That's what manifest means, to appear or to be revealed. He appeared in the flesh, in history, as a man. And John, who is writing to us, was an eyewitness. A couple of months ago, my son Asher and I uh, sat with a lady. Her name was Ida Inouye. She's 101 years old. Ida is a Japanese-American who lived through World War II. Asher's doing, he was doing a history project on the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II. And that, for the record, was an episode in American history that I was unaware of when I was Asher's age. And it's not surprising because the more you look into it, you realize how terrible and embarrassing it was for America. And it makes sense that many have tried to forget about it. But it happened. 
Asher and I went to Manzanar, which is one of those camps, and we walked through the barracks and we touched the gravestones in the cemetery there. And Ida told us about the camps like Manzanar where her parents spent World War II and where her in-laws spent World War II, forced to live during the war. She told us, She told Asher and I these stories while hosting us over grilled cheese sandwiches at her retirement home. It happened in her lifetime. And she said, and I quote something like this. She said, we didn't think it was right, but we did it because it was what America wanted us to do. Did you hear the we in there? She said, we didn't think it was right. She's including herself amongst all of the Japanese Americans of the time who shared this experience. That's the same kind of we that John uses in this passage, including himself amongst the number of people still alive at the time that he's writing that can give an eyewitness testimony to having seen the eternal God in the flesh in their lifetimes. And he did more than just observe it, he's saying. He says, we have heard that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. John didn't just hear about Jesus. He has heard the sound of Jesus' voice speaking. I love how he says that they saw with their eyes. He's being explicit about the bodily experience of using his own eyeballs to look on the person who was named Jesus of Nazareth. He says, we touched with our hands. He's not talking about some kind of transcendent experience, somebody who comes back from a retreat and says, you know, I feel like I've touched God. He's talking about passing a piece of bread at the dinner table and brushing up against Jesus' fingers as he takes the plate. He's talking about being there when... Thomas said that he would not believe that Jesus was resurrected unless he touched his uh, wounds in his hands and put his hand in his side. And so uh, John is there witnessing with Thomas and touching himself the, the wounds where the nails held Jesus on the cross. He's talking about an experience with Jesus that was as real as the grilled cheese that Asher and I ate with Ida. John's not attempting to scientifically verify that Jesus was God in the flesh. I don't think that he would have thought in those terms, but he is offering legal testimony. He, when he says we, he's giving a deposition in uh, the scripture. A testimony of two or three witnesses was required to establish something as true in a court of law. And so Just like today, John says, there was a we, it's not just me. There were at least 12 of us who saw it and touched and heard, and some of them are still alive. You can ask around. The incarnation is crucial to the Christian faith because in it we understand that no human, uh, beginning with the very first humans, Adam and Eve, was ever able to overcome sin and death, and so God himself needed to save us. And yet, at the same time, humanity is responsible for sin and rebellion, the the pollution of the creation that God has given us. 
humanity would have to be held accountable. And so in Christ, God comes to save us. His eternal life manifests among us, but in Christ, a man is held responsible for our sin and dies in our place. More on that in weeks to come. But Jesus coming as a man has other incredible implications. God gave Jesus a body, the body that he intended for Jesus to have, the body that Jesus needed to have to accomplish what God had set out to do. Uh, Jesus had the body that God gave him even though he suffered in his body and he struggled in his body. And if Jesus' body was good and an intentional gift from God, then so is yours. Your body and my body, what God has given us is a, is a good gift. Some of us have bodies that we've never loved. Some of us have bodies that don't do what we want them to do or need them to do. Some of us have bodies that get sick too easy or infected too often, but God has given us bodies as good gifts. And the one you've been given is intentional. It's got something to say to you about who God made you and what he's designed you for. He's telling us about himself because the scripture says that we were created in his image. In some way, we don't quite understand. We learn about God when we learn about ourselves. When someone hurts your body, they have not just damaged your property. They violated you. And when someone violates you, the scripture tells us they're violating the image of God. When I neglect my body, I neglect the image of God. I reject a good gift that God has given me. A good gift that he gave me in which to live and move and have my being. Which brings me to a second implication of Jesus' incarnation. Fellowship in the flesh. John says that this is the reason that he is writing, so that you too may have fellowship with us, he says. Imagine for a moment that you invite some people over for a meal. You make great preparations, you clean the house, even in the places that you know they're never going to be. And you make shrimp. You have a wonderful evening in which your guests say many wonderful things about you and your shrimp. The next day, you discover that they actually hate seafood and choked down the shrimp out of obligation. Was that fellowship? The word that John uses for fellowship is not particularly common uh, in Greek or in the New Testament, but you may, you may have heard it, koinonia. And it means something like sharing together in the experience of a common bond or a transcendent experience. And when John says us, he uses the we and the us a bunch of times. Uh, he says that you too may have fellowship with us. He's inviting his readers at the time and us as we read today to join him and the others like him who saw Jesus with their eyes and touched him with their hands. Uh, we're being invited into a kind of koinonia like no other. You see, 
a gathering of people, an incidental gathering of people is not in itself koinonia. It's not real fellowship just because people are in proximity to one another. Real koinonia happens when people gather around a shared experience or a common bond. And the quality and depth of our koinonia is directly related to how true and important the thing is that we gather around. So there's a level of community that happens when you wait together with other fans for a new iPhone to come out or wait in line to go see a new Marvel movie. These things are fun and in some ways truly neat, but not that important. And so, so is the community around them, fun and truly neat, but not that life-changing. Some people are going to send me angry emails about Marvel movies, but that's for later. There's a level of community also that can happen around disinformation or, say, a conspiracy theory concerning something that's really important, whether or not it's a natural disaster or a tragedy or a political uh, election. But if, people, if what people are rallying around is actually untrue, then their movement uh, may be powerful, but it is at best meaningless and at worst terribly dangerous. And this is, uh, this is what John was worried would happen as there was misinformation growing up in the church that he writes to, that gathering around false teaching or something untrue would either at best make the church meaningless and unimpactful, and at worst be dangerously compelling to people looking for truth. There is a kind of community that can happen virtually in the metaverse on a Zoom call, right? A community that form, you can form a community there that is around something that is true and truly important. Uh, but it's not uh, the same thing. I think we all have had an experience in the last few years in a pandemic of a Zoom gathering, whether it was around for a for a, a, a college class or even around something important like a great preacher teaching the scriptures. And while we, we gathered around something that was good and true and important, it wasn't the same thing, the same kind of koinonia that John was talking about because it wasn't really a gathering. It wasn't embodied. It's not people in the flesh together, sharing an experience and a commitment together. We all felt that uh, anemia at some point or another during uh, a pandemic when we were distance learning or telecommuting or virtually worshiping. These are certainly some of the reasons that surveys report today that people are more lonely than ever even while being more connected than has ever been possible in history. We were created as holistic beings. Jesus' incarnation reinforces and affirms that God gave you a body and a soul and a mind and that we were uh, created in his image in that way to be in fellowship with one another. We were created as 
holistic beings and intended for the joy of deep fellowship, of gathering around things that are good and important. And at the very beginning of Scripture, we're told this same truth when uh, in the book of Genesis, we're told it's not good for a man to be alone. If the incarnation is true, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John has testified as an eyewitness, then there's nothing more important. John says that trusting the crucified and resurrected Christ is a shared experience that invites us into the the communion, the, the koinonia of those who knew him and walked with him and talked with him. And that being a part of that community actually is an invitation Uh, into the the community, into the koinonia that is at the center of everything. The fellowship between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the community, the koinonia, through which, along with the Holy Spirit, all things were made. That's what the first chapter of John says. Part of the celebration, part of our celebration of Trinity Sunday is this realization that at the center of reality is not random chance. And at the center of reality is not some sort of impersonal force. At the center of reality, there is relationship. There's love. There's koinonia between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And at the center of reality, there is complete joy. And that's what we were made for real communion with each other and with God. And so it's no mistake that we culminate our service with communion. It's no mistake that Jesus, when he was in an upper room with guys like John passing bread and wine, uh, gave us a way to remember that being with Jesus wasn't a virtual or a purely spiritual experience. It was as real as the little crumble of bread that you get in your hand. It was as real as the taste of grape juice on your tongue. It's no mistake that celebrating communion on a Sunday morning brings us together. We're forced to go down the aisle with people who we chose not to sit next to. We have to physically show up and do this. Participate in community. And it's no mistake that Jesus says that it's his body and his blood that make this possible. 